all know someone. So, Lord, we pray for your mercy on those that are going through sickness right now, Lord. We pray, Lord, for healing. Pray for your grace for them. Pray that you would lift them up, Lord. And, Lord, I especially think of Tony Zapata tonight, Lord, and pray for healing for him, for your grace for him, Lord, that he'd be able to walk out of that hospital, Lord, that you would say the word and heal him, Lord, we pray, and give Julie and the kids grace. Pray for your mercy on this family, Lord. Be glorified. May they be rejoicing in you, Lord. And we pray, Lord, for a word for us tonight, that you would bless us, Lord, only by your spirit. We pray and we thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, it's been a while, but we're in 1 John chapter 3, I think we're on verse 7. John 3, 7, 1 John. It says, little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. Which makes sense. A person who practices righteousness is righteous. A person who practices a musical instrument is a musician. A person who practices on the football field is a football player, unless you play for the Bills. Sorry. Sorry, Joanne, but it wasn't pretty today. Yeah. Um, so he who practices righteousness is righteous. All, thing, all these things are a, pro a process. People who practice something are trying to reach that goal, that perfection. It's a process. And the old saying, practice makes perfect. And the, this morning we were kind of talking about this with the kids in Sunday school. We were talking about wisdom. That wisdom is knowing what God desires and then doing it. Not just knowing it, but doing it. Knowing what God wants us to do and do it, and knowing what God doesn't want us to do and not doing it. And that uh, I told, you know, we were talking about how the person who does that, who decides to do and chooses to practice righteousness and do what God desires and has a life that's marked with obedience to God, realizes that, man, my life is immeasurably better. Those whose lives are marked by obedience to God receive that abundant life that Jesus promised. Our lives are better. Obedience to God. And the old saying, practice makes perfect. A person who uh, wants to master an uh, instrument practices and is diligent in it. I remember uh, I was, had a roommate who uh, we shared an apartment. And his, he was really into music, and his favorite kind of music was blues, and he wanted to be a blues player, play in a blues band. So we went out and bought a harmonica, and he was going to play blues harp, and he practiced, and he practiced, and he practiced. And I sat at home wondering, thing, trying to figure out a way, how can I murder this guy and get away with it? And not only did he practice all the time, I mean, everywhere he went, no matter what we were doing, no matter where we were going, he would have that harmonica with him and he'd pull it out and start playing. You'd see him driving along and you'd have one hand on the wheel and that thing in his mouth playing. And not only did he practice consistently, but he practiced over, he bought, went out and bought a microphone and practiced over, over an amplifier. I can't believe the neighbors didn't burn our house down. And so he's practicing over this amplifier, driving everybody crazy. But he was diligent in it, and he wouldn't quit. You know, I tried to make him quit. I tried to distract him, but he just wouldn't quit doing this. 
um, practicing because he had this goal to play in a band, to play in a blues band. And so he kept at it and wouldn't quit. And one day I'm walking home and uh, I'm going down our street and I can hear him playing over this amplifier. And I just cringe. I didn't even want to go home. So I'm walking along. I'm getting closer and closer and it's getting louder and louder. And then all of a sudden, it was the weirdest thing. I remember the moment. It was like somebody hit a switch. All of a sudden, he got good. It was like that. All that practice, all that diligence, all that not giving up, all of a sudden, just paid off. And he got, not only did he got good, get good at doing it, but he became known for his playing. And he was able to play with a whole bunch of bands, and people would actually come. Every place he played would get crowded because people wanted to hear him play. He had a goal, and he achieved it through diligence, practicing. We have a goal as Christians, the upward calling of our Lord and Savior, and to stand before our Lord and to hear him say those words, well done, good and faithful servant. That's our goal, to hear him say those words. You stayed with me. You didn't deny me. You believed in me, and your life showed it. That, that, that's our goal. No, no matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, our passion is to obey God in every circumstance and in every relationship, practicing righteousness. And, God, and John says here, beware that no one deceives you. Warning of deception is one of God's themes, one of John's themes throughout all his letters, warning us, don't be deceived. Don't deceive yourself, don't be deceived. And in this day and age that we live in, surrounded by so much deception, constantly being bombarded by it, it's easy to be deceived. It's easy to be turned to the right or to the left. Uh, it's easy to deceive ourselves. And John warns us, don't be deceived. Um, people, I've heard people say, looking at the world today, how bad it is, and people ask, you know, how much worse can it get? How much worse can things get? You know, I hate to say it, but I think according to scripture and looking at the world today, I believe we haven't seen, we ain't seen nothing yet. It's going to get worse. It's going to get worse, which is bad news for the world. But for us, it's like the old saying, a light shines brightest in the darkest part of the night. Jesus told his disciples in John 16, 2, he said that they will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. And you think, man, could it ever get that bad where people are being killed and people think they're doing God a service? Could we be hated that much because of our belief in the word of God and our desire to practice righteousness? And definitely it could happen. Will it ever get to that point? And the Bible says that it will. In Matthew 10, 21, Jesus said, Now brother will deliver up brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. He who endures to the end. And you think, man, that, isn't that a bit of an exaggeration? Children giving up their parents to be put to death? You know, could things ever get that bad? Could evil ever gain that much ground in this world today? In our country, could evil ever gain that much ground? And we have to ask ourselves, is it possible? And has it ever happened before? In history, has this ever happened? 
I was reading this thing. In 1933, the Nazis issued a decree that required Germans to turn in anyone who spoke against the party, its leaders, the government, and the decree was called the Defense Against Malicious Attacks Against the Government, and it stated, anyone who makes or circulates a statement of factual nature which is untrue or grossly exaggerated or which may seriously harm the welfare of the Reich or of a state or the reputation of the national government or of a state government or parties or organizations supporting these governments is to be punished provided uh, there is no more severe punishment is decreed in other regulations with imprisonment of up to two years and if serious damage to the rake is done or a state has resulted from this deed penal servitude may be imposed so all of a sudden Nazi, the Nazis took over Germany and they made it a law you cannot speak against the government and if you do there's going to be repercussions could that ever happen in this country is it happening in this country and when I was reading, there was a man named Alphonse, Alphonse Heck, who was a member of the Hitler Youth, and he recalled the effects of the law. In 1938, he was living with his grandparents when his father came to visit. In respect, I think it was the last time my father railed against the government, against the regime in front of me. He wasn't much of a drinker, but when he had a few too many, he had a tendency to shut down everyone else. You mark my words, mother, he yelled. That Austrian house painter is going to kill us all before he's through conquering the world. And then his baleful eye fell on me. And you, my son, they're going to bury in that monkey suit, speaking of his Hitler youth uniform. He chuckled. But that was too much for my grandmother. Why don't you leave him alone, you stupid fool, she said sharply. And watch your mouth. Do you want to end up in a camp? Speaking of a concentration camp. He laughed bitterly and added, so it has come that far already, your own son turning me in. My grandmother told me to leave the kitchen. The last thing I heard was my father's sarcastic voice. Are you people blind? This thing with the Jews is just the beginning. He went on to write that they were right in keeping him away from his father because he would have turned him in. His father could have been turned in by members of his own family. We think, man, could something like that happen here in the land of the free? Could things get that, ever get that bad? Why not? History does repeat itself. It's an easy thing to happen. Here we have freedoms. We have freedoms now. We can meet. We can have prayer meetings. We can proclaim the gospel. And we should be thankful for these freedoms. And these freedoms should be cherished and guarded. But freedom inherited can sometimes lead to lethargy and complacency. Someone said, but the spark is lit and the brave are counted when circumstances put people in a position where there are only two choices, stand or fall, confess or deny. When we're brought to a place where compromise isn't even an option, we don't hope for persecution, but we do desire to be found in Christ and not be ashamed before him. And whatever it takes to get us there, is going to happen. Persecution is not necessarily a bad thing. How much worse can things get in this world? Again, I don't think we've seen anything yet. But in the darkest hours, 
Grace will be poured out on those who trust in his mercy like never before. Ephesians 6.13 says, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. You know, we wonder, what would we do? What if persecution got so bad that it was life-threatening? Would I stand or would I fall? We think, think of Stephen in Acts. He was brought before the Sanhedrin. He gave them a Bible study, and they were highly offended. He was going against the state. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, they were, when they heard these things that Stephen said, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. We will stand with I believe anybody who is in that position where there is deadly persecution happening, grace is poured out like never before. And the same thing that happened, happened to Stephen would, would, would happen to us. We will stand because Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. We will stand because that's our desire and he will hold us up. And in the lion's den, grace will be experienced like never before. John is constantly warning us about deception. One way, sure way to make sure that we're not deceived, either by the world around us or deceiving ourselves, is to be grounded in the truth. Psalm 19:160 says, The entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgment endures forever. John 17:17 17, 17 says, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Last time we were, we were together, we were speaking of when troubles come, whatever kind of trial or tribulation comes into our lives, whether it's poor health or sickness or loss of a loved one or some manner of loss in our lives, we pray that we are going to be found in Christ when those things happen. And we are going to be found in Christ because we believe what Jesus accomplished through his death and resurrection. And we pray to be found, in, not only found in him, but to be found with him. The question is, and our prayer should be, Lord, we pray that we are found not only in you, but with you. If you were a disciple back when Jesus was on earth, and you were following him, you would be with Jesus. You would walk with him every day, not getting ahead of him, not lagging behind, or laying down and falling asleep. You would stay with him, not losing sight of him, close so you could hear his words and talk to him. We should pray that we are found in him. When we, trouble comes, Lord, we pray to be found in you and pray to be found with you. As it says about people who have gone before us, saints who have gone before us, like Enoch, it says that they walked with God every day. They were, not only were they in Christ, but they were with God. They walked with God. And if there's anything that has been exhorted from this pulpit over the years with Pastor Jeff and Pastor Rob and everyone who's ever sat here, it has been to be in the Word, to be in the Word, to be, to be um, um, meditating on the Word of God, to be praying over the Word of God. If we are in the Word, and having that time with Christ, 
and fellowship with him, we won't be deceived and we'll be found in him and with him. And John refers to the people he's writing to as little children. You can see the, the care that the apostle had for the church, addresses them as little children. And Jesus said, unless you become like little children, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Whenever he wanted to show the apostles who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, he would put a child on his lap. We are to become like little children in dependence upon him. But we are also called, exhorted to grow in the knowledge of God, in the knowledge of Christ, and grow in grace to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, it says in the Bible. That keeping childlike faith and dependence, we would decrease and he would increase. Ephesians 4.14 says, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Second Thessalonians 2.11 says, And for this reason God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they, they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Again, I don't believe, we, we haven't seen anything yet. People ask, how, how bad can it get? We ain't seen nothing yet. Does that scare us, or does it fill us with anticipation of the faithfulness of our Lord and living as we are in the most exciting time in history? It's never boring being a Christian, especially these days. For us, every day as it should be, and every day is an adventure. And as long as we have that love for the truth, we're safe. And if we drift away from that love, we should recognize it and pray for it because our Father desires us to have it, to be protected as little children. The person whose passion is to do the will of the Father is righteous. One whose life is marked by that obedience is righteous. Righteousness is submission to God. The apostles always referred to themselves as bondservants. And I was reading someone and reading about someone, and his prayer was always, "Lord, make me your slave. I'm willing. I'm willing to give up all my rights. You bought me. You paid the price. Make me your slave. Make me obey you. Make me obey you. Either by knowledge of your goodness, or whatever means necessary. But make me obey you. Make me your slave." James 2.18 says, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Do people know that you're a Christian? Yes. How do they know? Because I told them. I told them I'm a Christian. That's good. People should know that we're a Christian. But we know that once people know that, once we tell people that we're a Christian, they're going to be looking for evidence. They're going to be watching to see evidence they're going to be watching our lives, and our lives will either confirm or deny the truth of the gospel. People are going to be watching. Matthew 5.14 says, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Wouldn't it be a glorious thing if people knew that we were followers of Christ without us even saying a word? What a miracle that would be. I've told this before, but there was a woman in, ch in church here who worked at a uh, health care facility. 
and she was constantly being teamed up with this other woman, and this other woman was pretty rowdy. And the Christian woman always wanted to share the gospel with her, but she never did. You know, either it wasn't the right moment, or she just didn't, whatever, have the guts to do it. But she never shared the gospel, and she prayed for her. And one day they're going up in an elevator, and this woman turns to the Christian woman, and she says, what is it with you? What, what have you got? I've been watching you. I've seen you when things are going crazy, how you react. I see how you treat people, how you treat the patients, how you treat the residences. And I've seen you in every situation, and I want what you have, she said. Wouldn't it be great if some people would say that to us? I, want, I see what you have, and I want it. I see Christ in you, and I want it. And then she was able to tell her about Jesus. Verse 8, it says, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. He who sins is of the devil. Whoever says he is without sin is a liar, the Bible says. John 2.1 says, My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin, but if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So it's acknowledged that sinners sin. It's acknowledged that we need to come before the Lord every day and pray, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Someone said that was my first prayer that God heard, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That was the first prayer, and it'll be my last prayer before I leave this earth. But it's speaking in that verse of a lifestyle of habitual sin, people whose sin doesn't bother them, someone whose conscience has been seared, trampling the doctrine of grace and someone who has rejected Christ's work on the cross. Satan has been destroying nations and individuals through deception since time began. Then, that night in Bethlehem, God showed up. And the words in Genesis, let there be light, were fulfilled. John 1.4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Verse 9, Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. There's a current heresy going around that Christians don't sin. Joyce Meyer is one who's kind of spreading this. She says that she doesn't, she's not a sinner. She, she doesn't sin because all her sins, if all my sins have been taken away, how can I be a sinner? Twisting that verse. A lamb cannot live its life like a lion. It's just not in him. For a born-again believer to live, have a life of purposeful, extended, unrepentant sin, it's just not in us because his seed remains in us. Who is in us is the Spirit of God who sanctifies us, who keeps us, who heals us, who convicts us, who brings backsliders home. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in, in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Ephesians 4.22 says that you put off concerning your former conduct at the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind 
and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God, in true righteousness and holiness. Because his seed remains in us, that's why we sorrow over our sin. That's why sometimes we're brought to a place like David and we pray, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation because his seed remains in us and brings us to that place. It's why we would rather die than be separated from Christ because his spirit lives in us and is keeping us. Verse 10, in this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is he who does not love his brother. John 8:42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father the devil, and the desire of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. The children of God have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, and the fruit of that spirit is love. Jesus said in John 13:35, By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Galatians 5, 6 says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. James said that faith without works is dead, and we think, well, what works? And Jesus has said in John, the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself through love. Not the phony, humanistic love, with everyone sitting around with flowers in their hair singing, all you need is love but the incomprehensible love that was demonstrated on the cross, which is the glory of God. Verse 11, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother righteous. Brothers righteous. The Bible says that agape love never fails, the kind of love that the world professes is prone to failure, especially in the face of someone who is practicing righteousness. Verse 13, do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Don't be surprised if, if there, in other words, don't be surprised if there is severe opposition and persecution. You know, I've heard people say, you know, be aware if the world is patting you on the back and telling what a good person you are, and they're doing that because you're compromising and a friend of the world. The world being those who through word or action deny the truth of the word of God. I have known people who judge their spirituality by how much people hate them. I remember we had somebody who kept coming over to our house and he kept saying, and every once in a while he'd say, boy, the Lord is really using me, I'll tell you. At work, nobody can stand to be around me. And he figured he was doing well, that the Lord was using him because everybody hated his guts. It's not wise to judge our spirituality 
by people's response to us, whether that response is positive or negative. John 15, 18, Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Proverbs 29 says, for he who is upright in the way is an abomination to the wicked. And you have to ask yourself, who hated Jesus when he was here? The self-righteous hated him, legalists hated him, the prideful, those who were attached to this earth and not to the kingdom of heaven hated him. Those who would profess that they are good in their own righteousness, and Jesus would say, no, you're not. Your righteousness is as filthy rags before a perfect God. In order to be righteous before God, you have to be perfect, like Jesus is perfect. And the only way you can be perfect is you have to be made perfect. By the removal of your sins through faith in Christ. John 17, 6, Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. And why does the world hate and so oppose and give so much opposition to evangelical Christianity? Because we say that they're wrong. Homosexuality, wrong. Same-sex marriage, wrong. Abortion, wrong. Children encouraged to decide what gender they are from a long list of genders, wrong. Almost everything that the world celebrates we say wrong. The word of God says wrong. And they hate it because we're hindering their little tower of Babel utopia. Don't be surprised if the world hates you. And it's not easy. I'm sure everyone, every Christian has experienced some degree of alienation from family or friends because of our belief in the word of God. Look at Daniel. The state declared in book of Daniel that religion is to be illegal. Prayer was declared a crime. And what did Daniel do? He opened his window and prayed so all the world could see. Not boasting in himself, but, but allowing the world, but not allowing the world to scare him into falling in step with their march to a destru destruction. People hated Jesus because he testified that their deeds were evil. But sinners who had given up trying to be religious, outcasts, they wanted to be near Jesus. They flocked to him. They wanted to hear his voice. They wanted to hear his words. And he ate with them. And they saw that this man, who is proving himself to be the Son of God, loves me. This man, who is above religion, loves me and cares about me. And for the first time, they had hope. The adulterous woman, dragged through the streets and thrown in front of Jesus, and they're ready to stone her. You know, what did she see when lifted off the ground and looking into the face of the one who is the righteous judge of all the earth, the one who could judge her? She knew she was guilty, that her guilt was real. Jesus knew her guilt was real. But what did she see? Condemnation or salvation? We are called to be Christ-like in this world. I like the lyrics to this song. It says... Well, they gild their house, they gild their houses in preparation for the king, and they line the sidewalks with every sh sort of shiny thing. They will be surprised when they hear him say, "Take me to the alley, take me to the afflicted ones, take me to the lonely ones who somehow lost their way. Let them hear me say, "I am your friend. Come to my table. 
Rest here in my garden. You will have a pardon. If people hate us because we believe in the word of God and practice righteousness, so be it. But may people see Christ in us. May people see Christ in us. And especially when, when raising children, people wonder, you know, what's the secret to raising children? You know, bringing children to church, absolutely necessary. Having family devotions, absolutely necessary. Praying for and with children, totally necessary. But the most important thing is that children see Christ in their parents. And they see Christ in the people in the church. Because that love cannot be denied. Kids can walk away as they get older, walk away from the church. They can deny the church. They can deny Calvary Chapel. But they can't never, they can never deny that they were loved in a way that they have never been loved. Verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. John 17.3 says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And the Bible says that God is love. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says, For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. When Christ died, we died. And we live because Jesus rose from the dead, and we simply believe that. And the fruit of the, and because Christ is risen, he has given us his spirit, and the fruit of that spirit is love. Could there be anything more glorious or more to be treasured than the knowledge to know that we have passed from death to life? The Bible says the joy of the Lord is your strength. No joy, no strength. We won't be able to stand in that evil day. No joy, no strength. There was something that Jesus often said to people, a phrase that he said, be of good cheer. It was usually, usually said to address fear and anxiety and hopelessness. He said it to many people. He said it to the woman who was bleeding and touched his robe. Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. He said it to Paul. Paul's arrested by the Romans, thrown into jail. And Paul's sitting there um, in jail, surrounded by important people who have taken a vow to murder him. And that night Jesus stood by him and said, Paul, be of good cheer. For you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Be of good cheer, everything is under control. I like what Jan Markle said yesterday at the Prophecy Conference. Things aren't falling apart, things are falling into place. When Jesus sent the apostles to the other side of the sea and they're traveling by boat across and that big storm comes up and they look and they see Jesus walking on the water and they scream because they think it's a ghost. It says, but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, be of good cheer. It is I, do not be afraid. Always addressing fear, be of good cheer. But, and Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come upon the water. And he said, come. 
And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Peter might have been thinking, doubt? What are you talking about? I just walked on water. What are you talking about? Doubt. Yes, but the storm became more real to you than my word to you. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. My favorite one is in Matthew 9, 2, where they bring the paralytic man paralyzed. He's on his bed, and they bring him to Jesus. And Jesus says to the man, Be of good cheer. You know, what an odd thing to say to somebody who's paralyzed. Be of good cheer. You know, what have I got to be cheerful about? I can't even feed myself. I can't do anything for myself. I'm hopeless. I'm helpless. I'm going through this affliction. And you say, be of good cheer. If you say that to somebody in that kind of affliction, there better be a good reason why they should be of good cheer. And Jesus gave it to him. He said, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. You know, and we have to ask, you know, there's a lot of people who today in this world, in the church, who are paralyzed paralyzed by fear, paralyzed by health problems, hopelessness, confusion, doubt, anxiety, trials of all kind, and, and they become paralyzed. And Jesus would say the same to us, no matter what you're going through, no matter how bad it is, no matter how fearful it is, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. No matter what tribulation befalls us, we can be of good cheer because our sins have been forgiven. We should be dancing in the streets in spite of everything that's going on. Verse 15, whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. The definition of love the Son of God nailed to a cross, a love beyond our comprehension and that we can never be separated from. Romans, it says, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sin can steal our joy, but you can't make God stop loving you. His love has already been stretched through all eternity, past and future. Our sin testifies against us as to what could have been. The love of God testifies to what is and what will be forever. He who hates is a murderer. There are people who carry grudges. I remember Pastor Richard was talking about that one Sunday night about grudges within families. You know, so-and-so got married and they didn't invite me to the wedding. I'm never going to speak to him for that. I'm going to go to my grave hating that person. Carrying grudges. Now, our flesh loves to carry grudges. Our flesh loves to be angry with something. It feeds it. People carry People even hold grudges against God. I was watching this documentary, and this woman who was a Holocaust survivor was saying that she was in a concentration camp, and a truck pulled in carrying Jewish prisoners to the camp, and two children fell off the back of the truck. And she watched as an SS officer came over and shot both of them and murdered them. And she said, that was the day I stopped talking to God. 
There are people who have suffered satanic cruelty in their lives, and they either curse God and die, or cling to Jesus in spite of everything, and not only live, but thrive. People don't forget. People never forget a kind. The older you get, you realize that people never forget a kindness, and they also never forget a hurt. You know, the older you get, it's weird. I, my mind flashes back to like even grade school. Somebody saying something kind, somebody saying something encouraging. And you remember those things. And you also remember the hurts. Some hurts are so lethal, people say, I know I'm supposed to forgive, but how can I? Colossians 3 says, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also must do. This isn't a suggestion and it's not optional. We have to forgive as Christ forgave us. Matthew 5, 23 says, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. You can't worship God and hold on to a grudge and unforgiveness. When we hold on to unforgiveness and bear grudges, it's like we've stopped following Jesus on the road and we're no longer with him. We stand still as he gets farther and farther away till he's out of sight. Bearing with one another it just doesn't mean tolerating people. It's a person whose priority, who pra practices righteousness, whose priority and only desire is to do the will of our Father in every relationship. And because they have this passion to obey, they have the power to forgive unconditionally and they have peace. They have unbroken fellowship with God. Jesus said in Luke, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will, will save it. And I have to ask myself the question, am I willing to lose my life? Or do I try and save it by bearing a grudge because I have my rights and I'm justified in feeling that way? Do I have a real love for those around me? Am I willing to lose my life or am I trying to save it? In the Gospel of John, it says, Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. They were trying to save their lives. Verse 17 of 1 John. But whoever has this world's good and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? There are a whole bunch of different needs, physical, spiritual, emotional. How willing are we to get involved in another person's life? It's never convenient, and we're not going to do it if we're trying to save our lives. We're not called to meet every need, but we are called to pray without ceasing. Is our desire to do the will of our Father, or are we willing to lose our life, or do we try to save it? 18 says, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Romans 12.9 says, Let love be without, without hypocrisy. Verse 19, And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Obedience to God brings great assurance. 
Obedience to the truth enables us to assure our hearts before God, not by works, but by a proper response to grace. Do we know and have the love of Christ? Do we pray in truth, Lord, make me your servant, make me your slave? Verse 20, for if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. You know, does your heart condemn you when you read the word and you see where God desires us to be and we see how far short we fall of it? Does your heart condemn you? You know, mine can. How, how many, too many times I've tried to save my life loving the praise of men more than the praise of God. Too often the love I profess to have for people is hypocritical. His love and acceptance toward us is not based on our devotion to him, but on Jesus' devotion to his Father. Someone wrote, To preach devotion first and blessing second is to reverse God's order. It is preaching law, not grace. The law made man's blessing dependent on devotion. Grace confirms, confers undeserved spiritual blessing. Our devotion may follow, but does not always do so in proper measure. The re reality is not how bad I have failed. It's not how bad I am, but how good Jesus is. The reality is not how bad it is in this world, but how good it is to be in Christ. Verse 21 says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. There is nothing in this universe or any other universe that is more valuable to any man or woman than to know that they are right with God, to have that assurance, to wake up every morning and know I am right with God. Nothing more valuable. How do we know that we're right with God? By knowing that the only way anyone can be right with God is by believing in the one whom he sent, by hearing the word of his truth, by practicing righteousness and confession of sin. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, in verse 22, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. God will never fall into debt to anyone. It's never, I've done this, Lord, so you have to do this for me. Romans 8, 12 says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. When a good and lovable child comes to his parents, they're likely to receive what they ask for. No offense, but we are neither good nor lovable. There's only been one who always did what was pleasing to the Father. Those who are abiding in Christ desire that his will be done. As a result, their prayers are aimed at accomplishing that desire. Verse 23, and this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. You know, what is God's purpose? That we receive eternal life. And this is life, that we believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And this is the evidence of that life, that we love one another. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Because you are sons, it says in Galatians, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. And that's how I believe that ultimately we know that the spirit of God dwells in us. That no matter what our circumstances, whether good or bad, no matter what our successes or our failures are, 
we are ultimately and always brought to that place where we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit always brings us there. Romans says, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. All the law, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, all those ordinances that people sometimes look at as being distant from the New Testament, summed up, love your neighbor as yourself. Romans 13 says, love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And I think that's a good verse to end with. Take home and contemplate that one. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So, Father, we come before you and we just want to thank you, Lord, for your word. And we pray, Lord, that more and more you would make us your servants, Lord, that we would have that love that we would love you more, that we would love people, Lord, in truth, that we would serve you in spirit and in truth, worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray that your will be done, Lord, and we thank you for your promises, we thank you for your love, and we praise you, Lord. Pray for this week, Lord. Use us, Lord, we pray, and may people know that we are followers of Christ. We pray for your Holy Spirit, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.